It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 at the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. Glad to be with you for the next 60 minutes as we break down all that is happening with respect to the New York football Giants. In multiple ways, you can interact with us here on the program. You give us a ring, 201-939-4513. Can't get to the phone. You could use hashtag GiantsChat on Twitter. Or, of course, you could send in your comments and feedback to our own personal Twitter accounts as we move along here on the program. And as a reminder, you can find the archive of this show on our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app. Podcast platforms everywhere and at Giants.com slash podcast. So we are in OTA season. That is continuing as the Giants continue to work out and implement their new schemes and systems, building up to the three-day mandatory minicamp, and then they will obviously break after that in early June before we start things up again for the start of training camp in the latter part of July, early August. But what I think we could do today that I thought would be interesting, Paul, on Friday we really dove deep into Daniel Jones and reacted to what he had to say in his latest presser and the expectations for the season, the pressure that obviously comes with that territory. But you and I have had multiple conversations on this show that this year, if the Giants want to take a step forward, it's not just about the 2022 draft class, this incoming group. It's about the development of really 2021 and 22, the way that I look at it. Right. Year two for the 21 class is just as big in terms of what, once again, the immediacy of this year's class could do. So Ojolari spoke to reporters late last week, and one of the things he talked about was the fact that he has added a lot of muscle and he has bulked up a little bit, and part of that, I think, was what he experienced last season. He said that it wasn't what the team directed him to do, Paul, that he was actually motivated to really tweak and craft his body in a specific way to better prepare him for the level of intensity and the caliber of talent that he's going to go up against now in year two. I think that's very admirable because a lot of times a team will go to a guy and say, look, this offseason, we need you to do X and Y because we're going to ask you for different things when you get back here. Uh, he just decided on his own that he needed to do this. Obviously, they were on board with it. Look, if you watched Aziz Ojolari last year, he did not win a ton of bull rushes uh, with his strength and power. Uh, it was obviously not enough. He understood that. He claims that adding the 10 pounds has not at all impacted his speed or his quickness. Uh, I tend to agree with him based on what we've seen so far, but until they get into real physical contact practices and until they get into some preseason games, it's kind of hard to truly judge it. But but I think he probably knows his body better than we do. He believes that everything is the same. Uh, I, I can say this. Old Jolari for his eight sacks last year, and I didn't quantify them. Probably I should have before making this statement. But I think if you've watched him enough, you know that most of his sacks last year were by effort because he cleaned things up and he just got after guys. And before you knew it, he was on top of the quarterback and made the sack. Or potentially, you know, somebody else got there first. They tried to avoid him. And then Ojolari was there to finish things off. He didn't necessarily have many explosive 
I beat my guy and made a beeline to the quarterback type of sacks. Ojolari, I think, understood that after playing in the NFL as a rookie, he was going to need to add some power because once he gets that strength component up to snuff, he will then have the ability to use more power moves, add them to his repertoire, and then become a much more dangerous pass rusher. And obviously understanding now that Kayvon Thibodeau is going to be the speed rusher on the other side, uh, it just made a lot of sense. He didn't specifically address the fact that Thibodeau coming in here you know, gives him that other threat on the other side of the line. But uh, it's clear to me that when you look at these two guys – Thibodeau is the guy who's got the tremendous quickness, the get-off, and the bendability, and the pliability, and and that's how he's going to make his living. Old Jolari doesn't have that kind of quickness, although he does have very good bendability. If he can start beating people with bull rushes and with power moves, it's going to cause fits for offensive line coaches and offensive coordinators trying to figure out how to deal with these guys off of the edge. And as you mentioned, with respect to him not noting that Thibodeau could very well open up opportunities for him, Leonard Williams did, though. And I know we're focusing on the 2021 draft class more, but Leonard alluded to the fact that it's nice to have two guys now that are young, up and coming, and how that could change the dynamics and the attention of what the offensive players are going to do when they have to deal with those three guys in particular, who are all obviously capable of getting after the quarterback. The other thing that I brought up, I think, late last week, but I'll bring it up here with you, Paul, is what's also interesting about Ojolari Sacks was, yes, they came in bunches, and I think that's typical for most players, but I think what gets lost is a lot of them actually came very early in the season. If you look at that tally of eight, he only had two and a half sacks in his final 10 games. So I think if you're Ojolari, part of also putting a little bit more power into your skill set is that it won't maybe come heavy early in the season. Teams will adjust. They'll have a better read on you, and then the production will dip. Like any good, solid pass rusher in today's NFL, you want to be able to say, hey, I'm not a guy that's just going to rely on a three, four-game stretch over 17 games. You know, I'm going to be able to spread the wealth. So I think that, I'm sure, is in the back of his mind, especially since, remember, now you've got a year of film. And this is, I think, important to be said about the entire 2001 draft class. Last year, you benefited from being a little bit of the unknown. Teams were getting a feel for you. Your own team was getting a feel for you. Now this year, your divisional foes, remember, nobody changed coaching staffs with respect to this division other than the Giants. So they already have had one go around of getting an idea of what some of these young guys could do. So that's more of a reason why in the game of chess or checkers, however you want to word it, Ojolari, as he gets set for a second season, you want to be able to show that you've got a few more maneuvers in your arsenal of weapons as opposed to just trying to think that what got you there last season is automatically going to carry over. Well, guys in this league love to pick out one-trick pony pass rushers because they can handle them. It's really that simple, Lance. If you're just a one-trick pony in getting to the quarterback, they will not you know, have to worry about sleeping at night because they'll be like, hmm, okay, yeah, that's what he's going to do. That's his move. That's his go-to move all the time. <laughs> I got that. It's really that simple. The more tools in the toolbox for a pass rusher, the more headaches he causes for the offensive lineman. It's really just that simple. I mean, Michael Strahan had four favorite moves 
Now, he had more moves than that, but he had four favorites, which he could make as a go-to move in a big spot. Do you know what kind of problems that causes for a tackle? Sure. When, okay, it's a big spot. Oh, he's going to go to that. Uh Uh-oh, no, he could go to A, B, C, or D. (laughs) Now what do I do? (laughs) Yeah, and it forces you to react on the fly a little bit more as opposed to having a better read on a player. That's why it's such a difference maker. I'm with you there. Now, when you look at this entire 2021 draft class, you have Tony, you have Ojolari, Aaron Robinson, Ellerson Smith, Gary Brightwell, Radarius Williams. So six players in total, all six still currently on the roster. We've talked a lot about Radarius Williams having an opportunity, along with Aaron Robinson, in terms of the cornerback position this year, with James Bradbury out of the picture. Ojolari, it goes without saying, opposite Kayvon Thibodeau. Tony, with now Wandell Robinson in the mix, two shifty, dynamic wideouts, depending on how they utilize them. And Ellerson Smith, who started to scratch the surface late last season. I guess what I'm getting at, Paul, you could really make, maybe with the exception of Gary Brightwell, and no disrespect to Gary Brightwell, but the fact that we have a variety of running backs, he's mainly been known as a special teamer going back to his Arizona days, but you could argue that at least four of those six guys, because Ellerson Smith, I think, is more of on the border, I'd put him, could have a significant impact in terms of roles and opportunities this upcoming season. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of a lot of your question is hard to answer because we just don't know these coordinators well enough yet. I will say this. Ellison Smith, to me, and I've said this since the end of last year, I think he's the most intriguing player of the draft class. I think Aaron Robinson may wind up being, next to Ojolari, the most impactful. I, I like Aaron Robinson a lot. I, I also think that Rodarius Williams has upside. But the guy who's the most intriguing to me has got to be Ellerson Smith. His toolbox, his length, his athleticism. Lance, I, man, the, the sky could be the limit for this player. Now, can they unlock all of those physical tools with the experience and the maturity uh, that he's going to need? Remember, last year he lost half the season on IR. Yeah, and remember, he didn't play the previous season in college. Exactly, because of COVID. You know, sure. his program took the time off. So so he is so raw. But my God, look at the toolbox on this guy. It, he's just, I, I can't help but be really intrigued. And when I watch him, I was just out there again today watching OTA number four. And it's clear that Wink Martindale is going to use his versatility to the max. Um, You know, we've talked about this before, that the Martindale scheme will have guys standing up, will have guys, you know, dropping down, will have guys left and right. And you say, well, what's so different about that? Well, what's different about it is that Wink will have it change play to play. He will have guys coming at you from all different angles He will have different guys playing the same identical spots more often than maybe somebody else would so that it causes mass confusion. That's what it is. It's it's a chaotic front or a front of chaos, if you will, that Wink Martindale bases his defense upon. And Ellerson Smith, because of his toolbox and his skill set, is a guy he can do a ton of stuff with. And I've already seen it 
during the spring practices. Let me just tell you that now, folks. I'm not giving you any secrets, but Ellison Smith has a very versatile skill set, and Wink Martindale obviously knows that. The other thing that you were hitting on with respect to Ellison Smith, and I think that's a big theme as we branch out here with respect to the 2021 draft class, you had Ellison Smith miss the bulk of the season because he started the year essentially on IR. He was placed on IR on September 1st. He wasn't activated until November 6th. And then, by the way, in January, he was placed on IR again with a neck injury. So it was really in and out of being fully healthy. Then we know Radarius Williams missed the bulk of last season with the torn ACL. Kadarius Toney, right? He was another guy in and out of the lineup. So of these players that we're talking about, and if you include Ellison Smith, that makes five of six. Because I would agree with you. I think Ellison definitely intriguing is a good way to describe his potential for this season. I think you have maybe a little bit better grasp or idea of how maybe the other guys I mentioned could perhaps fit into roles. But Ellison Smith, if we take it to five out of six, you have Smith, you have Tony, you have Radarius Williams, and I'll even throw Aaron Robinson out there. I know Robinson played the second half of the season. Remember, he had core muscle surgery that cost him the first half of the year. My yeah. point is, four of these six players, durability is still somewhat of a question mark in the background. So can they stay on the field to actually truly reach their potential? Now, I know you were focusing just on Ellison Smith, but all of them fall under the umbrella of potential. The health is still a looming question, I would say, overall in terms of this entire draft class. Well, let's for a second talk about the guy who might have the toughest battle to make the roster out of that draft class. I think that could be an interesting question. And for me, it's got to be Gary Brightwell. Without a doubt. Because I'm looking at the Giants running back depth chart. And I know that Matt Breed is going to make this team. Uh, I also know that Antonio Williams is coming down from Buffalo where he was with uh, Coach Dable. Gives him an advantage. Right? You would think so. You would think so. Now, I know he was on the practice squad for, I think, a year or two. So, you know, in terms of, you know, what does his resume say? His resume is pretty blank. There's, There's not a whole lot there except that Dable knows him. And he obviously understands the Bills' offensive system and the uh, the parts of it that are going to be coming down to the Meadowlands. And remember, not to cut you off, Paul, but they brought him very early in Immediately. the Immediately. Lance, yes. they didn't waste much time. Very he was early a in quick signing. Yeah. So I have to believe there's something there that they're thinking about that would make him part of this running back mix. Well, I don't see them keeping Barkley, Breida, Brightwell, and Williams. I think that's probably a stretch because I suspect, based on what what we were told by Dable, uh, he does like to have that fullback-type guy on the team. Now, I understand also when you look at the roster today, you know, Jeremiah Hall, uh, you know, rookie uh, uh, free agent, is the only undrafted guy he's the only fullback on the roster in terms of being a pure fullback but remember you could always use one of those tight ends as an h-back slash fullback too so i don't i don't know that he's going to keep more than three halfbacks i think that's the max so antonio williams and gary brightwell may be fighting for that one final spot and then there's the dark horse here what about Jashawn corbin out of florida state undrafted rookie yep i mean i I got to tell you something. I looked at his tape, Lance. I think he's. I think he's got enough to be a, a fifty-three man player. 
No, I don't think that's a stretch at all. Here's another factor while we're on the topic of the running back depth chart. The utilization, Paul, of a guy like Wandell Robinson, who could be somebody that contributes to the running back room because of how he was utilized at Nebraska and Kentucky, that, I think, further makes it even challenging for a guy like Gary Brightwell because if you're Brian Dable and Mike Kafka, as well as Joe Shane, who's going to be involved in the process, as you're cutting down the roster, I think you're saying to yourself, especially if it's a numbers game, hey, if there's a wide receiver that we could give a snap or two at the running back position, maybe that then says to yourself, we don't have to keep as many running backs, right? Because we have the versatility in other positions. Now, I know what the response to that poll is going to be. Well, not from you necessarily, but others. Well, you don't know how injuries are going to play out. But I think the initial stages of the 53-man roster, plus the ability to keep a guy on the practice squad. And remember, Gary Brightwell would be eligible, by the way, for the practice yes. squad. Okay? Yes. That's important to note. I think that makes it a little bit more difficult for some of these young running backs to make the initial 53 because you have wide receivers that have experience as runners. Well, the other side to that coin, though, and what might help Brightwell is that we know Brightwell is certainly a very willing special teams player. It's the reason the Giants yep. drafted him in the beginning anyway. I don't know beans about Antonio Williams or, or Corbin playing special teams. In fact, to be frank with you, my guess is they probably haven't done it. Though, I think that if they have a good idea of one of the two, it would definitely be Antonio Williams. Because even on the practice squad, you figure you get him mm -hmm. some special teams work and you have an idea of whether or not he could contribute in that department. But it's hard to tell because, once again, he's got very limited regular season experience. So you don't have much to go by. And sometimes, how often do we see, Paul, you see a guy in practice make a flash it's the old story. Until you do it in a game, you don't really have much to bank on the resume there. No, no no question. I, I, I just know that uh, Gary Brightwell, who made a name for himself in college as a special teams dynamo, uh, this is a guy who, you know, he's going to get down there and kick coverage. Well, he was and on all four teams in college. Yeah, and he's yeah. going to do the dirty work. Sure. And I, I don't know enough about how Williams practiced in Buffalo to know how much special teams work he did. Even if he did, so let's say, kick returns on the scout team, that's yeah. not the same as getting down in coverage and making a tackle. Gary Brightwell is not afraid to hit people. Yeah, well, I'm just looking it up. And by the way, this is only a very, very small sample size because he only played in one regular season game in 2020. So that's the... <laughs> legitimateness of exactly. basically Antonio It's a blank resume. resume is what it yeah. is. Well, and the reason I'm bringing that up is in that one game, and you figure... When you're a running back, especially knowing who they had on that roster with Zach Moss and Devin Singletary and Josh Allen, that you'd figure if you're going to give him a jersey, most likely you'd utilize him on special teams. That game, Paul, he didn't play one special team snap. He played 28 snaps. They all came on the offensive side of the ball in that one game in 2020. Well, as I, recall, yeah, as I recall, that game, their entire backfield was hurt, and they force-fed him, and he had like 20 carries, didn't he? Let me see. In terms of production, he had 12 rushes in that game for Only 63 12? yards. Okay, yeah, I thought it was more. Yeah. But, but well, that's yeah, still he, a decent workload for a guy that never played in a regular and I, season. And game. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he took all the running back snaps in the entire second half of that game. Which, you know, again, very, very, very small crumb of a sample size. Uh, but that doesn't say anything about his ability to play specials other than the fact that because they were so badly injured in the backfield, they were not going to risk him on special teams because he was the only healthy running back they had that day. The other thing that's also important to note about that game, and once again, it's just 
something that is my observation. It was a blowout, too. Okay, they won by 30 points mm-hmm. over the Miami Dolphins. So, once again, I'm not saying that Antonio Williams wouldn't have had work had he not, you know, played in that game or if it was a little bit closer. But I do think you need to take into consideration they were up by a big margin and they probably said, why are we going to utilize Zach Moss and Devin Singletary for more touches if they're a little bit banged up and beat up? Because I am bringing up the game log. Moss and Singletary did play briefly in that game. They each had three carries. But when you're up by 20-some-odd points in the second half, you're going to play Antonio Williams. So he was a product of the lopsidedness of that contest as well. Okay, so I stand corrected. I thought that they were hurt that week. No, they well, they could have been banged up because both of them, I know, you're accurate. They were definitely dealing with injuries throughout the season because Moss, I remember, was inactive and Singletary, but they were active. They had jerseys, and they each got three carries in this game because I have the log right in front of me. But Antonio Williams had four times as many carries as the two of them, and once again, they wound up winning 56-26, to 26, and... The score at halftime was 28-6. to six. So that's the reason why Antonio Williams was able to— by the way, he got two rushing touchdowns in that game in the second half right. because they basically told Zach Moss and Devin Singletary, hey, guys, you could be spectators for the rest of the contest. We have this in the bag. Well, for what it's worth, I'm looking at Antonio Williams' college numbers out of Ohio State in North Carolina. And yes, over the four years in college, he did average over five and a half yards a carry, but did not catch the ball very much. Uh, did not return much in terms of kickoff returns. In fact, only three for his entire college career. And then uh, tackles, one solo tackle uh, during his entire college career, which says to me that he wasn't playing special teams on kick coverage either. So these are things you got to keep in mind when you yep. start figuring out who the third running back could be. Absolutely. And you also need to weigh whether or not, based on the usage of the player, Paul, does it justify keeping them on the 53-man roster? Mm -hmm. Especially if you're not going to utilize them as a runner because they're that deep on the depth chart. But are you going to have a role for them on special teams? Is there somebody else that doesn't play running back that you could see doing a job that Gary Brightwell would assume? All of those things come into play when you have to make some cuts. And also, I think knowing that Brightwell has availability to go on the practice squad, I think maybe would give them a little bit more flexibility in the event that they have a tougher decision to make at another position. Final thought there on Corbin. Uh, Again, uh, we're talking about a guy who only had two tackles in his entire college career, Texas A&M, and uh, ended Florida State. So, um, you know, you're not talking about a guy who was on the kick coverage unit. And in terms of kick returns, uh, you know, I'm not seeing a whole ton in terms of kickoff returns either. He didn't do it a whole lot outside of his first year in college when he was at NCAA level with Texas A&M. So, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's clear based on the college records that Corbin and Antonio Williams were not the special teams demon that Brightwell was when he was at Arizona. I think that's pretty clear. Now, whether or not they can do that here now that they've got a chance to make an NFL team, well, you know the story, Lance. Coach, coach, whatever you want me to do. <laughs> yeah. That's the best way to make the team. Hey, the more versatility, the better. Remember, Corbin early in his career, I believe, was a little bit banged up, too. So that probably was also a reason why he didn't maybe get as many opportunities on special teams, especially when you're running back. They want to limit your touches from that standpoint. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here 
on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We're going over the 2021 draft class, the outlook of that group, how that group is just as important as how we're talking about 2022, and who perhaps you think could make the biggest impact, an intriguing candidate like we talked about with Ellerson Smith, and so forth. An opportunity for you to weigh in, and we'll get to the phones here in a second, but first, a few reminders. Giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2022 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seat. Starting at just 100 bucks, call 888-NYG-1925, or you can visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. Also, don't miss your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giants games and world-class concerts in 2022 as a Giants suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available, or you can place a deposit for all individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925, or for this one, visit Giants.com slash suites for more information. Let's open up the phone lines as we move along here on BBKL. Brutus is in the Bronx. Mr. Alliteration, welcome to the program. Yes, how are you guys doing here? All Hi. right, I got four four quick topics that I wanted to touch on uh, real quick. Number one, will we look at some center depth? We're picking up uh, J.C. Treader. Center depth? You, you, the Giants right now have Feliciano, who was their starting center, Max Garcia played center last year for the Cardinals, and he's a guard slash center as a swing interior lineman. And it's no secret because the writers wrote it last week. Ben Bredesen has also been working out at center as well. And we also know from Lance's conversation with the North Carolina's coach that it's not entirely impossible that Joshua Azudu could also potentially take some practice snaps at center too. So I don't know that the Giants need to go out and get anybody else. Plus, you have Nick Gates, who I understand, obviously, is not necessarily close to returning. But based on the substance we just laid out, I don't think it's a big priority to add another center. I would agree with Paul. Okay. And what about um, cornerback? Uh, They just uh, released uh, Kevin King, former second-round pick. I think he played with Green Bay. Yep. Um, 6'3", pretty, you know, pretty service. Looks like he got some good talent, but did get toasted in the – playoffs this year but um they said he was playing with an injury what do you think about him well I mean once again we've talked a great length on this program about the importance of developing the young guys giving them every opportunity also let's not forget they added two veteran players in recent weeks the Giants who have ties to Wink Martindale's defense including Kennedy who is with him in Baltimore so I think familiarity is probably the direction they're going in. And the other thing is, you know, limited funds. A guy like Kevin King, I don't know what the market's going to be like for him, but, you know, this is a player that has been in the NFL since 2017. I'm sure at this point he wants to get on with another team, but he may also demand a little bit more money than what the Giants are willing to pay at this stage in the season. And Okay, and what about, um, what's the holdup with signing the last four um, rookies that was drafted? Well, there are always tiny details in terms of what's the guarantee, what's the bonus money, how it's going to break down with incentives. Those are tiny, tiny details. I wouldn't worry anything about it. Good. And the last topic is is um, Daniel Jones. And I'll hang up after this. What do you think is a good season for him that would either earn him the extension and or that franchise tag if they decide to go that route next year. Thank you very much for taking my call. Appreciate you guys. Hi, right, Bruce. Appreciate the phone call. That's sort of a piggyback off of our conversation that Jeff and I had on Friday. I've said this multiple times. First of all, I don't think one season in general necessarily maybe 
completely changes the mind of what the Giants front office is thinking because that would be the first season, Paul. Let's say he has a really good year. I'm going then under the idea that he's playing probably a bulk of the games, right? I think that would be a fair assumption. If statistically he puts together a very solid season, you're probably talking about Daniel's probably out there for about 15 to 16 games in minimum if you're even entertaining the idea of the franchise tag or even a short-term extension. But that would only be the first season in four in which Daniel Jones has proven that he could hold up. So I still don't know if you'd feel that great about locking him up long-term under those circumstances. But if you're looking for a statistical barometer, I think you'd like to see his numbers return to what he did as a rookie, where you had a two-to-one touchdown-to-interception ratio, Mm -hmm. and you'd like him to obviously bring maybe the completion percentage and the decision-making along a little bit better. But I think that would probably be at least a good starting point or measuring stick, if you want to word it that way. Yeah, I think the first number you're going to look at is the games played. You know, uh, how yep. many how many percentage, uh, what percentage of the snaps does he play this year? Because uh, the durability thing, I, look, I, I've been very vocal about this. I think Daniel Jones is going to be really good. I, I like him. I know it's been a while, and there are those who are still skeptical or maybe flat out don't like him, and that's fine. You don't have to. Uh, I do think he's got it in him to be a winning quarterback in this league, and the injury bug to me has been the primary reason why it hasn't happened, and then the secondary reason is the Giants didn't give him enough support. Well, John Mara has said, well, we got we got him the support now. We went out and we did it, uh, and we, we got to see. And so now it's up to Daniel to stay healthy, stay available. I think if he does, he will put up very, very respectable at the minimum and maybe downright good numbers. I think the interesting part here, Lance, and I don't know if you can statistically identify where he's got to be to tip the board over for a multi-year extension because there's that one other thing that the Giants could do, and that's franchise tagging. Yeah. And and that would be another hedge for another season. Uh, so, you know, how good does he have to be to get the long-term deal or how good does he have to be just to get the tag? Well, but even to get the tag – as you mentioned, it's I still be pretty think, good. Correct. I mean, because that's still a lot of money. I know sure. comparison to what quarterbacks are making this year, especially the top guys. I understand maybe you could look at it as a bargain. I get that. But for a team that has some strengths in the salary cap department and also knows they have work to do at other positions, I don't know if you want to lock that level of money in a quarterback that you're still very iffy about, and even if it's just for one year with the franchise. As tag. you've often said to me on this program over the years, there's always the transition tag, which is a little bit cheaper. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that one. Yep. So, because I think that gives you more flexibility, and you offer the player more flexibility to help set the market. Sure. That's why I like that. And, and so I'm with you. I think that's the other option here that a lot of other people aren't talking about. They all think that, well, Daniels, it's do or die. He's playing for the long-term deal or he's gone. Uh, not so fast. There is a door that has a big C on it that says A, B, or C. C is an option here. I think that's a very fair point. The only thing, though, that I will say once again is even if you're dealing with the short-term pros and cons with Daniel Jones. Money is still something that cannot be thrown to the wayside because there's still implications from that standpoint. And the other thing is, what are we talking about with respect to any player on this roster? 
And that's not to say that Daniel Jones doesn't have a positive outlook, but when you have a new GM and a new coach that was not responsible for bringing that player in, regardless of the season that player has, you still can't rule anything out. Case in point, I don't want to get completely off topic, Paul, but Baker Mayfield, who is another guy similar to Daniel that had a lot of different coordinators, has dealt with injuries, and, you know, I personally think he still has some upside, assuming he can land with another team, because clearly it doesn't look like he's going to hang around in Cleveland now that Deshaun Watson's there, but here was an example of he had a good year with Kevin Stefanski year one, Paul. That 2020 season was solid. The Browns made the playoffs. He played very good football. Actually, he came to MetLife Stadium. He played the Giants, if you remember, in a primetime game and helped them win, but Stefanski year two, he had the shoulder injury. The guy that even worked with him with a one good season, but obviously wasn't responsible for drafting him, decided to move on from him Mm -hmm. in trying to acquire Deshaun Watson. So if that happens in the NFL, then you can't rule anything out with respect to Daniel Jones. No, no. It's all on the table. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a very interesting fall, Lance. It will be indeed, yes. Well, from our standpoint, I guess it'll give us a little bit more content to talk about. So maybe we're not complaining from that standpoint. Speaking of talking, let's head back to the phone lines at 201-939-4513. Doug is in Rochester. What's happening, Doug? Yeah, Lance, I talked to you last week. Lance, I like you, but you need to understand me before you get off the line with me. Okay, I told you about receivers going deep, and you're talking. You didn't start off naming receivers. You were just naming receivers that how many catches they had and how many completions the yard average. I was not talking about that. If you look at Tyreek Ty- Hill, he had 40 to 50 yard catches. Okay, Buffalo had Davis 40 to 50 yards. If you look up some of those receivers that you looked up, you have to look and see how many times they caught 50 and 40 yard passes. Sure, I wasn't disputing that, Doug. But I wasn't disputing that, Doug. I was just saying they were utilized in a variety of ways, and when you come down to the average per catch, that that is the law of average over the course of the season that obviously the 50-yard catch is going to help bring up the numbers, but there were a lot of catches where you had maybe five, six yards, and then you took it 40 yards after that. So there was a mix and match with respect to that. And I also mentioned Robert Foster, who's on the Giants roster, who has been known as more of a deep threat runner, meaning you throw to him 20 to 30 yards down the field, which I thought answered your question about somebody that could well, have no, that potential. No, no, I just haven't seen it from, you know, Robinson's a rookie, and I haven't seen it from Tony or Galladay. Well, you know, like, if you look at teams, like you even said it Friday, you can't always throw off the dump pass. Defense is going to read that. You have to throw the ball 40. I'm talking about in the air. In the air, okay? I know exactly you what you're talking about. Do that, okay? Not, not yak yards. And I just don't see anybody on the Giants can do that. And, you know, and you know how many times I see Mahomes throw the ball 40 yards and maybe incomplete or it was yeah, but, you know, you also need to understand that you're also bringing yeah. up the highest caliber of quarterbacks in the National Football League. Okay, Patrick Mahomes, he's right at the top of the list in terms of talent, versatility and arm strength. So, you know, you okay. have to at least put okay. things in perspective okay. with respect to that. Okay. The Vikings quarterback, Kurt. Uh, I mean, uh, you look at Carson Wentz. They they throw the ball because you got to throw the ball deep. You, uh, once or twice a game. Well, Doug, in, in uh, fairness, Carson Wentz okay. also happened to play behind one of the best offensive honest. lines in football. Okay. So, you know, you need time That's to throw the ball, do you not? And then I look at the Giants. I can't count on their threatening. And, I mean, you, know, you said it's Rob Foster, guy. Um, I don't know. 
Yeah, well, that's why I brought him up, because you don't know, Doug, and we appreciate the phone call. Paul, I want to go back to the point I'm talking about. If somebody's going to call up and claim that the Giants need to throw the ball more down the field, that's fine, okay? But don't you have to then take into consideration the offensive line and the ability to actually throw down the field? And also, if you're looking at last year, when Daniel got hurt, and then you look at who the quarterbacks were, and you're complaining why they didn't take more chances down the field, when... They barely were able to score three to seven points a game and have actually fluidity in terms of the offensive scheme. You know, that's asking for basically the cake and the ability to eat it as well as a parallel under those circumstances. Well, I'll go to another fooled analogy. You basically wanted to eat soup with a fork. It's really it's another what you, interesting way to look at it. That's yes. really what you were trying to do last year. If, if you're trying to get the Giants to restore the deep pass to their offense last year, with what they had to work with, you were eating soup with a fork. And that's just not going to work. So they've got the offensive line now that they believe will allow them to open up the playbook more. We know they've got the quarterback who a couple of years ago showed that he can be very efficient in throwing the ball deep. So now it comes down to, okay, will defenses respect all aspects of the Giants' offense so that it's a fair fight? and that when they want to throw it deep, they will have opportunities to burn people. Remember, Lance, (laughs) once you prove that you don't have a specific chapter in your playbook that you can go to, defenses start to cheat against it. And obviously, when you looked at the Giants last year, not only did they not have the offensive line to hold up, okay, but then Mike Glennon was the quarterback for the second half of the season, and he wasn't doing a very good job. Their receiver core was totally banged up, so they didn't have anybody. So what happens? A defensive coordinator goes, <laughs> that, that deep passing chapter in the playbook, uh, it doesn't exist anymore. So we'll just pack it in and we'll cheat. And, and that's what happens. And there's nothing the Giants offense could do about it. And that equals futility. It's really very simple. You can't just look at it on an island. And I'm looking up numbers right now just to give a better idea. This is a statistic which is considered intended air yards per pass attempt. And I know for some of the sabermetric nuts, some of these mathematicians could get really into a gray area, which doesn't necessarily tell the whole story. But I think this is an interesting statistic, Paul, which is, once again, intended air yards per pass attempt. Just hear me out here. I know you're not necessarily a big fan of all of these manipulations of the numbers, but it's average depth of target, whether completed or not. So meaning this is not taking into consideration what was completed and how that impacted the numbers. This is the quarterback and how far he's throwing the ball deep down the field per target. So number one in the NFL last year, in this category was Russell Wilson, 9.9. That was the standard, okay? Nobody had double digits in terms of intended air yards. Russell Wilson was number one. I just want to throw out Patrick Mahomes on this list was at 7.3. That put him 25th in the National Football League amongst starting quarterbacks, meaning quarterbacks that were out there for the bulk of the season. So Russell Wilson was 9.9, Mahomes was 7.3. And if you remember last season, Paul, because we had a very big conversation about this when the Chiefs played the Giants, and it was everybody questioning the Chiefs' offense, the fact that they weren't having those explosive plays, that it was more of a short yardage offense, the two deep safeties were preventing Mahomes and company from taking chances. So they changed, they evolved, and that's a big reason why last year Mahomes didn't necessarily have 
eight and a half to nine yards per intended target. It went down 7.3. Now, Josh Allen, Allen was at 8.2. So Josh Allen was seventh. And the reason I'm bringing both of these quarterbacks up is obviously those are the two offenses that the two coordinators and the head coaches worked with last season. But, you know, even a guy like Dak Prescott, he was at 7.7, which was 16th in the NFL. And think about all the receiving talent he had. Paul, heck, Aaron Rodgers was 17th in the NFL. He was tied with Dak Prescott, 7.7. So this idea that all of these top quarterbacks in the NFL throw bomb after bomb down the field, <laughs> and that's the only way you succeed, I think doesn't necessarily hold up if you actually peel back the numbers a little bit. You know what, Lance? This is partly uh, a phobia or a, um, oh, I guess what's what's the word I'm looking for? This is a This is a result of the highlight generation. Because what happens when you're watching a football game at home and they cut in for highlights or they cut in at halftime for highlights and all of a sudden they show you 30-yard pass after 30-yard pass after 40-yard touchdown? And then you get this perception that, oh, there's a ton of these being thrown every Sunday. When in reality, there's a very small percentage of those passes being thrown every Sunday. And even, even those, not all of them are completed. So, you know, it's, the, it's that, that highlight generation that tends to overestimate some of the, the frequencies of big plays. And it also goes back to what we've been talking about a lot on this show. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't throw the ball down the field. Don't misinterpret my words, because even if it's incomplete to your point, Paul, maybe you have a wide receiver that's very good at drawing pass interference. And even though that doesn't show up statistically, sure. right, in terms of the total yardage, it gives you a first down, gives you a good field position. But I think if we're looking at the personnel and the ideology of Dable and Kafka, I think it's more going to be set on the foundation and the operation of getting guys out in open space yes. and letting them do the lifting as opposed to Daniel with perhaps an improved offensive line should hold on to the ball, throw 40 to 50-yard passes down the field, keep his fingers crossed, and hope for the best. Now, to be honest with you, Lance, you do want to show that deep passing component Absolutely. in your playbook because otherwise teams will cheat. Yeah, And as I said a few minutes ago, uh, it works in the other way too because once you show you've got that in your playbook, now they can't start jumping the routes and they can't start cheating on those little 8-yard, 10-yard, 12-yard routes because, oh my God, uh, they may wind up sending who knows who deep. So you've got to have it. And you've got to be able to show it on enough of occasion to be able to command respect. Once you command that respect, and it's going to take a few weeks for the Giants to actually show what it is that they've got in their bag of tricks, other teams will then have to say, all right, we need to think about this stuff. And when we start planning our game plans earlier in the week, we've got to have a full table full of things to look for. Because the Giants are no longer just a one-dimensional team that's going to do this. No, no. They've got a bunch of stuff they're going to throw at us, and it's going to take a lot of headache pills. You see? Headache pills. Yes. John will be happy I said You're that. You're no longer branded. Congratulations. It'll, say, it'll yes. take a lot of yes. headache pills to <laughs> deal with the various types of weaponry that they could throw at us. Uh, uh, by the way, I do need to just mention this to you, Lance, because I just got it on my, uh, my uh, phone uh, Aaron Wilson of uh, Pro Football Network says that Nick Foles 
is joining the Colts on a two-year yes. deal. Yeah, that was reported late last week. Source. So now it's official. I yep. guess it's now it's now really happening. So that's one other veteran QB now off the market for sure. Yeah, and he'll be insurance for Matt Ryan, who just yeah. went to Indy. And remember, Nick Foles and Frank Reich were together in Philadelphia yes. because that season when Carson got hurt, Foles stepped in and they ultimately won a Super Bowl. So I'm not necessarily surprised that he's tapping into a player that he knows quite well. To just piggyback off of a few things you said, I like the parallel, by the way, in terms of the headache pills because, I mean, think about it. In real life, there are generic brands, and then there's the more you know notable names. So look at you. Also, you know, fitting in very nicely in terms of reality there. I, I commend you John, for branching John out a little bit. John kept like, scolding well, me. into your head. That's he, he kept done. scolding me. You can't yes. name the brand of aspirin. And I'm like, you know, it. but it's just... It's a, it's it's one of my nomenclature funky football dictionary names. I, Excedrin players, okay? I said it one more yes. time. Excedrin well, players. See, you, you, you're slipping up. I'm commending you for not slipping well. up, and then you went back to No, all I was going to say is I'm glad that you're open to buying the generic brand for once. Yes, okay? there you, there That's you go. That's all I'm happy to say, yes. What, the what other, do they call it? The good neighborhood aspirin? <laughs> right? Okay, well, if that's another way to spin it. I just I look at it more of the generic <laughs> brand and then the uh, you know notable mainstream one. So that's oh, what it reminds my. me of. But in all seriousness, getting back to the point at hand before we continue to uh, open up the phone lines here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. The premise of the question in terms of how we got into this whole thing about depth of target, and I'm with you, you certainly want to take your fair chances down the field because you want to keep the defense on its toes and you want to at least them to acknowledge the fact, hey, this quarterback, this offense, they could take chances. We can't cheat too much. With you there. But I think the premise of this whole conversation was back on right now if you look at the Giants roster, do they have the ability to make those deep throws, and while maybe there's not a lot of proven big plays within this offense because of track record, I would say Kenny Galladay, Darius Slayton, and I keep going back to Robert Foster, who I know has a small sample size in general, but he was there in Buffalo with Dable. Those three guys have the ability to stretch the field, Paul. If you're just looking for that, don't tell me that the Giants don't have guys on this roster that if they tell Daniel, Daniel, we want you to throw the ball 30 yards down the field, that those three guys in particular are not capable of running those routes and catching the ball. Well, you mentioned Robert Foster, okay? He was known as the roadrunner when he was coming out of Alabama uh, they timed him at his pro day at four three four. Now, if that's not speed, I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah. See, I think he's almost like the overlooked player in the receiving core. That's why I continue to bring him up. He's no lock, and I'll let you continue here, Paul. He's no lock to make the roster. I'm not telling you that, but he is certainly a guy similar to Antonio Williams, as we were talking about earlier. The fact that he has familiarity with the scheme and the coaching staff, there's a reason why guys like that were brought in, and he was also somebody that was brought in relatively early in the free agency period. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I, yeah. No, I don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that, and th- this is why the Giants receiving core. It happens to be a very intriguing position, I think, for a lot of us, not only because of the health factor, which clearly has not been you know, on their side for the last couple of years, but also because they've got a, a list of dynamic players who could potentially, in a very creative offense, be explosive threats. And that's what you want. You want to have the options. Also, the reason why you need multiple options is because of, as you mentioned, the injury history of some of these guys and the team overall. You can't go into this season. And this is another reason for you know individuals that are looking at the Tony and the Robinson selection and saying, well, it's a little bit repetitive. The Giants, they're the last team right now in the NFL that should be banking on we're going to have all of these guys available for 17 games. 
Not that you wish any ill will on any of these players, but based on the track record of this team, they have not been able to welcome in a fully healthy receiving core. That's more of a reason why if you have a little duplication, similarity, and skill set, it's not a bad thing in case one of them actually misses a stretch of games. Let's head back to the phone lines. We check in with Scott in New Mexico here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Scott? Hi, guys. How are you doing today? Hi. All right. Uh, what do you got for us? Uh, Lance, just a clarification. If for some reason uh, you throw a ball 15 yards and it turns into a 70-yard touchdown, does that count as a metric, or how far do you have to throw down the field for this system of yours, or the depth of chart that you were talking about? Well, the was? category that I was discussing, and it's a good question, this is labeled intended air yards per pass attempt. So if we take your scenario, Scott, and I'm a quarterback, and I throw to right. a guy for 15 yards down the field, hypothetically, and then he runs for an additional 30, then the right. only thing that they would throw into that category is the 15-yard pass. Because the quarterback, okay. think about it, the quarterback didn't throw for 45 yards. It was a 45-yard completion, but he only threw for 15 of it in terms of the depth of the target, and then the receiver or the running back took it the rest of the way. So this category only includes the depth of that initial pass. Anything else that okay. happens after it is irrelevant. Depending upon which service you're looking at, Scott, uh, they call that air yards per attempt. Yeah. Okay. All right, I, was just, I just wanted to get a clarification. I didn't know if there was a demarcation line, 30 yards, 40 yards, or something like that. Well, that's so why in, in the last few years, if you looked at Ben Roethlisberger's air yards per attempt with the Steelers, he was ridiculously low. Because right. the, the, the traveling of, of, of the pass out of his hand to his receivers, it was all about just getting the ball out as soon as he could, as short as he could. And all of his passing yards were basically being compiled by the receivers and the running backs and the tight ends as yak yardage. Well, and real quickly, Scott, before we continue, just another relevant point as I'm looking through the rankings, and I know I threw out a lot of quarterbacks, but... Dak Prescott was 16, as I mentioned. Aaron Rodgers, 17. Justin Herbert was 18. So there's three quarterbacks on three right. offenses that did not have problems putting points on the board last season, yet none of those guys were in the top five or in the top ten in terms of intended air yardage, air yardage per pass attempt. So it's another indication while we're enamored with the deep ball and the explosive pass, you can win effectively and have a good right. offense even though you're not constantly throwing bombs down the field. That was right. my main uh, point. Okay, I got it. I was, I was just trying to get a, sure. a more, more clarification on it. My main points uh, are include Daniel Jones and uh, Mike Kafka. I was very impressed with Mike Kafka's press conference. Uh, he struck me as a very honest individual for some reason, and I think he would like to make the play calls. How important would that be is my first question. In other words, him controlling, since he's going to be working with Daniel Jones. And then secondarily, I don't know why we keep beating Daniel Jones to death, which really irks me, because if you take Eli Manning, for example, oh, and by the way, Paul, I agree with you 100% that Jashon Corbin should make this team. I saw his tape, and he didn't get the ball out at Florida State. But he averaged five and a half to almost six yards a carry at the end of his final year in 2021. Mm -hmm. So he is a sensational running back. So I'm in perfect alignment with you in regards to hopefully him making the team. He's got some quicks. He's going to have to mature, gain some experience and patience and vision very quickly. But the skill set is there. Is there, right. 
So getting back to my, my initial point now with beating Daniel Jones over the head, if you compare him to Eli Manning, just for argument's sake, even in Eli Manning's championship year, 2007, he threw 23 touchdowns and he threw 20 interceptions. Right. And he didn't have a percentage over, what, 55% his first four years, which Daniel Jones has been over 60%. The bugaboo with Daniel Jones is obviously uh, missing games because... That's a big difference, though, Scott. Yeah, I mean, not to cut right. you off, but Eli, he stayed on the field. And then the other thing is, and I'll let you continue, I sure. think Eli had the luxury of a very good defense and teams Correct. that were winning early in his career. I mean, think about it. They were 11-5, and 8-8, eight and 10-6 eight, and six in three right. of his first four seasons. And the reason why I didn't include the first year is because Eli wasn't the starter for the full year. So the pressure wasn't the same with respect to Daniel. It's... The health question, it's the team's not winning, and then it's also the ball security issues. Eli, I mean, did not the have ball the security, same... Eli Manning is third in fumbles in the history of the National Football League. Well, so but I keep in really... mind, but, that, but in fairness, though, that's over the course of a career, which is pretty Correct. lengthy. You know, Daniel, if this rate continues, okay, he's probably going to shatter the mark all time. If this <laughs> Possibly. Picks up. You, you know, yeah. though, Lance, there's even a bigger factor, and that is... Even though in 2007, as a team, the Giants did not have a potent running game, Brandon Jacobs still ran for 1,000 yards that season. And obviously, the previous two years, Tiki Barber was having all-world kind of seasons as a running back. And when you put that kind of threat in the backfield with your quarterback, it makes things immeasurably easier. And look at what Daniels had to work with outside of the right. rookie season by Saquon Barkley, you know, and that's even that other season when, when Barkley had a thousand and he was nicked up and hurting. He wasn't the same. Uh, right. and, and, you know, so no, there's no question that Daniel Jones has been riddled with all kinds of obstacles and hurdles that have made his job so much more difficult than what Eli right. had to deal with. But my, my central point, and I agree with everything you just said, because he had no offensive line either. So the real key for me is working with Mike Kafka. Is How important is that in regards to developing a relationship to make Daniel Jones a more effective quarterback? Because obviously he dealt with one of the greatest quarterbacks, still is one of the greatest quarterbacks who will ever be in, in Mahomes. And He's bringing that kind of uh, continuity to Daniel Jones. Now, not the same quarterback, obviously, but he has the reputation for being able to develop. So is it important for Mike Kafka to be calling plays for uh, Daniel Jones, or do you think uh, David will, will want to accept that role? And is it important in the scheme of things? Uh, and I'll be glad to take your answers off the air, guys. Thanks. Interesting question. I will say this, Paul. And appreciate the phone call, Scott. If you're making the point that Kafka, and tell me if I'm wrong, Paul, but I interpreted that he was giving Kafka credit for helping develop Patrick Mahomes. Is that fair? It sounds or like it. did you it. not interpret it that it way? It sounds like it. Okay. Now, Kafka was with Kansas City going back to 2017, which was the year that Mahomes was drafted. However, he did not become the QB coach until the following season, 2018, which was the first year that Mahomes became the starter because Alex Smith left. But my point is, if you're claiming that Kafka was responsible for developing Mahomes, however, keep in mind, who called plays in Kansas City all those mm -hmm. years, right? It was Andy Reid and then Eric Bieniemy. Right. So there you had a quarterback that was developing with the aid of Kafka, but Kafka had no 
influence on game day in terms of calling plays. So if that worked, then I would say that weakens the argument, Paul, that he should absolutely call plays because of what you witnessed in Kansas City. Well, that's not what we witnessed in Kansas City. We witnessed the guy that helped develop a quarterback, but then on game days, that power was taken away from him. Look, I, I don't use that argument at all. You know how I feel about this. I would never have my head coach call the plays. You know I feel I, I, I'm old school. That's yep. the way I'm, I'm going to stick to it. It's my beliefs. I'm entitled to feel that way. I would not use that argument. I would simply say uh, Brian Dayball is a rookie head coach. This is his first head coaching job at any level, period. He was not a head coach in college. He was not a head coach in high school. This is his first ever head coaching job at any level, unless you want to include Madden football or some electronic video game. Okay, well, I don't even know if he was a head coach at right. that level. I mean, whatever. You you so, get the point. I'm being ridiculous I mean, you here. Could that, yes, but okay. you get the point. Yes. Okay. So to me, to me, under no circumstances should he be calling the plays. Kafka should be calling the plays. Uh, now, if Dable decides he's going to do it. God bless him. Obviously, he brings an extensive offensive resume to the table. And if it works out, wonderful. I'll be very glad for him. That still doesn't change my opinion that a rookie head coach who's never done it before, in my mind, should not burden himself with calling the plays. Period. And that's my that's my stance on it. It has nothing to do with anything that Mike Kafka has done with or without Patrick Mahomes. Well, I brought that up because that's facts. I mean, that's evidence that is tangible that I can prove and say if the caller, once again, was giving credit for the development of the QB being a product of Mike Kafka and saying that's more of a reason why you should have a guy call plays. Well, Mahomes did fine with other guys than calling plays on game days. That was my main point where you didn't necessarily have that relationship carry through to game day. I have been on the record. There's tons of examples of coaches that have done both. I have no problem with it. For example, in the division, Nick Sirianni was a first-year head coach at Philadelphia last year. He called the plays. The Eagles were 9-8, and eight, and their offense got better and better with the rushing attack as the season progressed. So I would say there's an example of first-year head coach, not a problem. To each their own. I have no necessarily issue with what you're saying, Paul. It's just I'm not as timid as you are. And here's the other thing, and this is my strongest argument for Brian Dable. If you hired the man because of what he did on the offensive side of the ball in Buffalo, then I don't understand the logic of wanting to take that power away from a man, even though he now has the title of head coach on his plate. I'm not saying you need to agree with that, Paul. We're entitled to have differential of opinion on opposite ends of the well, spectrum. Yeah, because but there's my, no right or wrong answer. No, here. of course. No, no. I just wanted to make that clear. I'm not yeah. coming back at you. No, I'm no, just no, talking no. in general sense. We're fine with that. But what, what I'm saying is, is that if the trend and the track record of the NFL is I hire a guy because I love what he did on the offensive side of the ball, I just I don't understand the logic of then wanting to take that empowerment away from him, specifically on game days. I understand Dable's going to be involved in the day-to-day process during the week formulating the game plan but he also deserves credit in Buffalo for having that rapport with Josh Allen during the game making adjustments over the course of a contest if Kafka calls plays not to say Dable won't have any influence but the dynamics are going to be very different than what he established with Josh Allen on game days that's my point I, I would add that there's probably some logic in also looking at it this way Dable comes down here 
builds the foundation of the game plan per se, which I'm sure is going to happen anyway. Now you sprinkle in, I don't know, 30% of what Kafka is bringing in from Kansas City. Uh, So therefore, it's not purely the Bills offense anymore. So the benefits of just having Dable call the plays is kind of watered down because it's probably more of a hybrid between the Chiefs and the Bills. And if it's a hybrid, then Kafka and Dable are equally new to the hybrid creation of this offense. And if that's the case, then the benefit that you're talking about is probably washed away because it's not really the same situation as it was in Buffalo last year. It truly is a hybrid, which then puts Kafka on the same footing as Dable. Well, that's a fair point. The only thing that I will still say differentiates the two is Dable has plenty of years' experience of calling plays. Kafka's never done that in his career. And that's and fair, whether too. Or not, whether or not the offense is, to your point, the conglomeration of the two, it's an art, right? Would you agree with that? Would you say play calling's an art? Yeah. Okay, oh, sure. so if it's sure. an art, then not to say that, hey, Kafka eventually has to spread his wings, right? You only learn if you're thrown into the fire. I'm a big believer in that, but... For an offense that's still young, a quarterback that's still developing, maybe you can argue Dable starts off as the play caller in this hybrid offense, and then as the season progresses, and to your point, it's going to be more of the stamp of both of them, then maybe you hand over the play calling duties to Kafka maybe six or seven games in, as he gets more and more comfortable in terms of how Dable is calling a game and the things that Dable looks for. I don't think that would necessarily be a bad game plan. See, I, I, I would only, and again, we could talk about this for hours, and there's sure. no right or wrong answer. It's just, do you like apples or do you like oranges? It is, there's no or right or wrong too. here. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, there's no right or wrong here. I think the only other piece of logic I would give you, and, and maybe I didn't express it you know, clearly before, it's not about thinking that, okay, Dable shouldn't call the plays because he's not qualified. Obviously, no, he's qualified. No, I didn't take that from what you okay. said at all. He's no. clearly qualified. And there's a tremendous benefit to bringing his experience and knowledge to the table. My bigger gripe with having him do it is that I don't think he can handle all of his other head coaching responsibilities on the sideline to maximum effectiveness if he has his head buried in that menu-sized playbook that he's got to deal with on the sidelines. I think it takes away from his effectiveness in the rest of his job. That would be my that would be my logical case against it. It wouldn't be that he would be a great offensive coordinator and a great play caller. Clearly, he's done that. The evidence is there. So I have no doubt that he is probably the best guy to call the plays. I, I think you you probably could sell me on that. But what I can't be sold on is that the rest of his job will be performed to maximum efficiency if he's calling the plays. That's the the sticking point for me that I can't get over. Yeah, well, there's more that comes with being a head coach than just being on your own side with respect to the offense. The only thing, though, I think will help him is that he does have a very experienced defensive coordinator in Wink Martindale who has been in that role for a number of years and doesn't necessarily have to be 
overseen in terms of what he even does on game day. So I think if there's an environment for him to balance all of that, I think at least having a guy like Wink. If he had a first-year defensive coordinator, Paul, I would be more to the extreme of where you are and saying, yeah, I'm a little bit concerned because now you've got inexperience across the board. The fact that he's got a little bit more experience around him, I do think maybe helps him balance things out a little bit better. But we could certainly delve into this conversation, to your point, as the offseason progresses and until – Dable makes the announcement if he chooses to do, because he's under no <laughs> obligation, remember, to make that announcement. No, he is we not. can continue to speculate till we're blue in the face yes. on this program. Correct. Okay. With that being said, that is going to do it for Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We'll be back up and running again at noon Eastern tomorrow as the OTA period continues. Today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live, part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcast. For Paul Dettino, I'm Lance Meadow. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest, and we'll speak to you tomorrow right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Have a good one.